You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And this is a post-season three episode. We're going to be talking about some events that happened during season three that could be spoiler-filled if people have not seen season three in its entirety. And we're also going to be talking about what happens in the first five issues of the comic book series because we're talking about Orphan Black and comics. So if you haven't read the comic books, spoilers for you as well. (laughs) And to talk about all this with us, we have once again, Stephanie's friend, Dr. Elizabeth. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. You are so very welcome. And Elizabeth is with us because she has not just a passing interest in in comics. Her interest in comics is pretty intense. It is near professional level, shall we say. Mm Mm-hmm. So why don't we get kicked off by talking about the Orphan Black comic books? If people don't know already, if you're scratching your head saying, what are they talking about? Chris, do you want to give people some background about the Orphan Black comics? So we're specifically talking about the first five issues of the Orphan Black comics. The first five issues are followed by the Helsinki miniseries, which we're not going to talk about. I believe that is also five issues, but they're, as of this recording, in the midst of that series. So. We're just not going to talk about them right now. But the original five issues were written by John Fawcett and Graham Manson and Jody Hauser. And they cover the individual characters, mostly backstory. We've got issue one is Sarah, issue two is Helena, three is Allison, four is Kasima, and five is Rachel. And so they each sort of focus on different aspects of those characters' backstories and, and each lead into the next issue. So what did we think of these first five issues of the Orphan Black comics? Elizabeth, what what are your sort of thoughts about generally? How do you feel like the, the comics worked as far as an additional storytelling piece for Orphan Black and, and its writers? Well, I thought they worked, worked well. So usually what happens when comics act as supplements or expansions to an already existing property they do kind of what these comics do. So IDW, the press that Chris mentioned that, that publishes these is, you know, notorious for or and good at uh, sort of taking an already existing media property and giving them some sort of side story or a backstory or something to supplement what we already know. So for something like Orphan Black, the reason that you would want to do that is because this is a sweeping sort of international story with lots of different sort of big equipment things happening, you know, big sets, lots of locations. And sometimes there are parts of the story that you might want to tell, but you can't for sort of budgetary, you know, natural budgetary reasons. Um, So comics... Are, do a great job of sort of giving you those scene settings uh, that you can't do otherwise. Also, in a comic, there's a real bonus around the fact that you can age your actors and make them look like anything you want them to look like. So, if, for example, if you want to see what Tatiana looks like as a child, I mean, you can do that in the show, but, you know, you have to use a young actress. So, you know, although they do a great job of finding people that look a lot, you know, like their characters, um, flashing them back is, you know, it's difficult. So you can flash back really well, which is generally what these comics are doing. The The first five issues are generally going over territory that we've seen in the show, for the most part. We'll talk about the exceptions to that rule. But 
they're mostly going back over the story and kind of filling in some things that they might not have filled in for time reasons or budget reasons or just, you know, because it's something extra that you can only learn in the comic. So I got to say, I personally was a little disappointed with the orf- with these first five issues. I don't know if, if you maybe felt the same, Chris, but as somebody who is really a fan of Orphan Black, the, the TV series, these were a little bit disappointing for me. I didn't feel like there was enough new information in them, and they seemed to really be written for people who hadn't seen the show before and maybe were just stumbling upon the comic books in and of themselves. I feel like that's especially true of the first issue. The first issue for me was really sort of borderline upsetting just because I I was so excited about them. It's like, oh, we're going to get backstory and, you know, fill in some gaps that we didn't have. And as I was reading the first issue, it's just kind of like there's so little new information compared to stuff that's almost exactly recapping things that happened in the first episode of the series. And it's one of those things I I was more upset the first time I read it because I went back and reread it before we recorded this and I appreciated it more like the the little bits that are new. But it's still yeah, I, I was still a little frustrated with it. I think they got a little they they got further away from that in the other issues. I think one or two of them are still a little bit too, I don't know. Too much of a retread. Yeah, too much right. like recapping stuff that we actually saw or stuff that we already saw. So I have a thought about that. So I I agree. I mean, that is the danger. And I really don't think these particular... So I'm thinking of them sort of as the five as a whole. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it really warms up, although I, I like each one of them a little better. I don't think it really warms up to the fact that you can do something else in the comic that you can do that than you did in the show until maybe three or four, like Allison or Cosima is really when they start to kind of warm up to the idea that maybe there's more we can tell. And then we really see kind of what they can do in that number five in the Rachel comic, which gives me some hope, by the way, for Helsinki, although I've only read the first issue. In other words, I share your frustration with that first issue. It doesn't do those things that I was saying that like these kinds of supplementary comics can do with a property. But it's sort of tantalizing. It's like, oh, look, you could have done something more interesting here, but you didn't. You know, like it's almost like they were trying too hard to go back and tell us the story again as if we forgot, as if, you know, DVD didn't exist. Like, I think a lot of times the way that these comics function before people really recorded stuff before DVD, you know, before people could watch easily with lots of different services uh, after the original sort of air date, like air date hardly means anything anymore. But these comics are still functioning like, oh, well, you missed the first part of Orphan Black. So let's retell it like they would for like um. So the first time people really started doing this was with the X-Files, you know, like people you couldn't assume when people were talking early about the X-Files that anybody had seen the episode you were talking about. So a lot of those early uh, like X-Files comics or or even like original series Star Trek comics are, you know, we're getting deep into fandom here, but the reason they're doing it is because you could not guarantee that everybody, even the Uber fan, had seen 
the the episode that you're talking about. So this is assuming that we hadn't seen it, which I, again, I, I share your frustration with this, that first issue. So yeah, I think my expectations for this were shaped by really the only other thing that I've read where it was extending, if you, the canon, if you will, of a TV show. And the first, the, the only other time I'd read something like similar to this was Buffy season eight. And, but the Buffy season eight comics are exactly that. They, you know, the te- television show ran seven seasons. The Buffy season eight comics pick up where the show ends and moves forward. So, if I'm recalling correctly, like I don't feel like they did a lot of recapping at the beginning of Buffy season eight. It was assumed that you needed to know a good amount of what had already happened when they when you read that first issue. Whereas this, I, I agree. I feel like when they wrote the first issue, they had in mind like, oh, people might stumble upon these comic books and not have seen our show. So we need to kind of get them up to speed. I I wonder, though, if it's possible they could have done it in a way that didn't just literally recreate some scenes in comic book form. But uh-huh. that's that's what they chose to do. And so that's ultimately what it is. Right. And I mean, I, I get that impulse that, you know, well, here, let's make it an introductory thing in case people come across the comic and maybe haven't seen the series. Because, you know, Orphan Black is still pretty, pretty much a, a, cult, show. a cult show. Yeah. So, you know, sure. I, I get it. And I think there was actually in one of the later issues in the in the letter section, somebody had said that they bought the comic and then went and caught up on the show because they liked the comic. So it is apparently at least somewhat successful uh, strategy wise. But yeah, it's just one of those things, I think, going into it and hearing the interviews with the creators and stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, this is going to be stuff that that is actually in canon and, you know, expecting big reveals and stuff. And, and instead, we mostly got like expanded scenes It, I felt a little cheated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, th- and the comic book did a lot of things that are kind of like personal pet peas of mine because <laughs> they gave us a lot of like flashbacks to things that were mentioned in the show mm-hmm. my stance generally on such things is that whatever you imagined is probably way better than anything they could actually create in a visual <laughs> form like if they sat down and tried to write it and actually film what happened in that space, it's probably not going to live up to whatever you imagined actually happened. So it was, it's just like, it seemed like they seemed to do all the things that I think people shouldn't do when it comes to TV shows in this comic book, which is, is again, it's just like my personal taste. But so I, I think that was really why I was kind of disappointed with these things. I think there are things in these first five issues that are interesting and new and fresh, but they just were surrounded by a lot of things that felt very done already. And part of that has to do with perhaps the fact that you guys are part of a podcast called Tatiana is Everyone, where like the, you know, where if you're on this podcast talking about it, you've already considered things. Or if you're just a listener to this podcast, too, you guys out there probably have already considered a lot of the things that this comic is 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 trying to sort of rehash for the newbie, right? So mm-hmm. if you didn't have the, you know, fabulous podcast conversation partner, like, you know, in your ears, um, you wouldn't maybe have thought about the episode in quite that way, or you wouldn't, your imagination would not be quite as stoked about certain things. So, you know, maybe if you just watched it once and sort of let it sit, I mean, the 
comics didn't come out until the hiatus. So it's like, maybe you just need a refresher about that fabulous thing that you watched a while ago and didn't think about at all since then, you know? My only thing is, though, would somebody who'd only seen an ep- the episode like once or twice, would they be motivated to go get an Orphan Black comic book? That's my thing. Like, I feel like the super fans are people who would go and get the Orphan Black comic books. You know, you're not wrong. You should probably work for IDW or one of these other publishers that does properties like this. I feel like they need to ask us, you know, like, what is it that the, the, the super fan really wants? Because you're absolutely right. Like the super fan is the one who's going to go out, you know, get it in issues and then, you know, buy the trade paperback when it comes out together because there'll be some little extra something in there that you can't get in the issue or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I think you're so right. They just don't quite know their market. And, you know, <laughs> they can be forgiven for this, I guess. You know. Well, and like you said, like, I have hope for the Helsinki storyline because mm-hmm. I, yeah. it seems like from what we get at the end of the Rachel issue, I've only read up through the end of the Rachel issue, they're probably mm-hmm. going to be introducing us to some new characters who we haven't seen on the show yet, or at least by the end of season three, we haven't seen these characters yet. And... I have a very vague sense of what happened in, Hel- in Helsinki. I, like, okay, they exterminated a bunch of clones. That's what we know. But I don't have like a firm grasp of what that might look like. So I have more hope for them filling in the Helsinki storyline in like a really interesting way that doesn't feel, feel as much like they're going back and just redoing what's already happened on the show. Right. But see, again, this is sort of what I had hopes for when the entire series started, because we didn't Mm -hmm. really quite know how they were going to organize these issues when they announced them. And I think there were indications that we'd get backstory about things. So I think a lot of people were like, oh, does that mean we're going to learn more about Beth? Because of course, Mm -hmm. the show hadn't it still hasn't done flashbacks in any sort of significant way. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, this is an opportunity to do that. And they did it a little bit, but they didn't quite do it enough. <laughs> I was really hoping that one of these first few ep- issues when they were focused on characters would be just about Beth. Right. And it would just be mm-hmm. all Beth. And we get yes. pieces of Beth, which I appreciated throughout the five issues, but I really wish they'd done just a Beth issue personally. Well, because they do hint at great stuff. But yeah, the, it it isn't enough for me. Me right. too. Yeah. Do, do you think they thought, you know, erroneously, obviously, that like if they <laughs> had a Beth comic, that people would be less likely to buy that one? You know, like if you just see Beth on the cover, I, you know, they sort of gave us the kind of, um, you know, they give us these great covers, by the way, which are oh, fantastic. You know, They're beautiful. They're I so love much them. fun. And you know, a bunch of different like options in there. There's different art in there with uh, the different clones. But do you think that they thought like, oh, we've just got to give people their favorites. And like Beth, while she can be your, you know, sh- she can't really be your favorite, you know, like you don't, we don't know enough about her to sort of make her, you know, a trading card, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, that's what they thought. Not that they were right, but yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't think so because I think they're pretty aware that fandom is a little bit obsessed with Beth because yeah. we do know so little <laughs> and know that there's a mystery there. But sure. I don't know. I could be okay. Wrong. Hey, calling calling IDW, make a Beth cover. We'll buy it. <laughs> well, and just the fact that again, I feel like their perspective in these first five issues was 
primarily that they were trying to attract people both who had watched the show and who hadn't watched the show. And mm. if you hadn't seen Orphan Black, like these are the five clones that you really need to know in order to sure. be steeped in Orphan Black, the Orphan Black universe. So I understand uh-huh. why they picked these five clones, but but like you, Chris, especially when I saw the the cover that they used for the trade paperback for these first five issues is is like one of the first pieces of art that I saw from the comic books. And I got really excited because mm-hmm. Beth is down in the corner. And I was like, oh, maybe there's going to be a Beth issue. But sadly, there wasn't. <laughs> I'm still hoping, though, fingers crossed, that maybe we'll get a Beth issue here in oh, the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they need a Beth miniseries. Like, even you know, better. We, yes, they after do. After we finish Helsinki, like, let's get to Beth. Like, mm-hmm. figure it all out. Because they are, they are now... Having only seen covers for most of Helsinki, they are branching out a lot more. Like they're using clones that are just part of the story on the covers. And they're, you know, they're doing different things with the art, which is, yeah, gives me some hope that that Helsinki is the place. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to. And I'm sorry that we've started out being, especially me, being kind of critical of what they did in these first five issues. That's not to say you shouldn't go look at them. I, I think that, you know, they are pretty good comics, you know, for what a comp, which you're looking for in a comic itself. It's just, I think our particular way Chris and I were situated, they were a little disappointing for what we were expecting. Right, right. I I do want to clarify, like, it was disappointing in that sense. But that's not to say that I didn't enjoy them overall. I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just have to uh, adjust your expectations. Exactly. I don't I don't think it's fair to judge something based on your expectations. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, oh, that wasn't what I was expecting. I'd hope for a little bit more. But that doesn't mean the thing was bad. It just because it didn't meet your expectations. Right. But let's let's maybe get into talking about so- what actually happened in these comics. And the first thing that I wanted to mention, and which I didn't really notice until today, because I was kind of going back and reviewing the the different issues a little bit before we recorded, and I just was flipping through my my trade paperback, which has all five issues in it, and it struck me that I feel like they really got the color palettes for the art for the different issues really right. And I noticed in particular, because I got to the middle, which is Allison's issue, and it's all of these brighter colors and pastels, and it's totally Allison's color palette in the show, distilled into the comic book. And, like, if you flip through Helena's issue, there's a lot of black and white. Like, it's a very stark issue compared to all the others. Like, and mm-hmm. we talked about before, kind of the colors of the of the clones. Her colors tend to be, like, white and army green and blood red. It, like she has a very distinctive color palette on the show, so I just wanted to applaud that. I thought they did a really good job of that in the art. Nice. I actually didn't notice it too much because I read them individually. I don't have them mm-hmm. all bound together, so I'll have to go back mm-hmm. and like hold them together and flip through. Do it. <laughs> yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. Flip them all. Flip them open and see if you can tell whose it is just from a distance. Because mm-hmm. I think you can. I mean, it makes sense. They do it on the show, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Kasima's section is like earth tones and jewel tones, which very much matches her wardrobe. Exactly. Rachel's isn't yeah. as distinct, I think, because I don't think Rachel has as clear of a color palette as the other characters do. She's very like white, clean lines, things like that. Uh, but the mm-hmm. other characters, I think, really, you, you flip through like, oh, yeah, that's totally Helena, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even for her, it's sort of a, yeah, like you're saying, sort of a white, and a, like an antiseptic white mm-hmm. and a and a... Min- very minimalist kind of design so it, like i'm just sort of holding it at a distance and saying, like flipping and <laughs> yeah it you're right it, they kept the themes very well 
So do we want to talk about the individual issues here? Yeah, let's sure. get into it. All right. So as we mentioned already, Sarah's is mostly recapping stuff that happened in the first episode of the series. I think we get some more scenes, like things that happened slightly off camera. Mm-hmm. Sure. Which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Get a little bit more info on Beth. Find out that there was some stuff that we didn't know that Beth knew. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, it just, it made me more curious, which is probably what they want. But, you know, the fact that they didn't actually get through all that stuff in season three, I think was maybe a little bit frustrating for me since it came out before mm-hmm. season three started. Sure. They tantalized us for things that they didn't quite follow through on. Like, you know. Maybe season four, I'm hoping. In the season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will say for the Sarah piece, I felt like the information that we got about Sarah was not all that interesting. Like, it was stuff that we knew before. They went more specifically into what she was thinking at particular moments, which, eh, I don't know that I care about as much. I'd rather appreciate, like, the, the subtlety of Tatiana's facial features and what could that mean, exactly, rather than just hearing <laughs> mm-hmm. her literal thoughts or see her literal thoughts being written on the page. But I will sure. say, I thought the the Sarah issue had some really interesting stuff about Beth. So it, it, even though it has Sarah on the cover, I feel like this was the most Beth of the of the issues that we've gotten so far. Right. I think it's one of those things where mm-hmm. if this had maybe come out during season one, I would have appreciated hearing Sarah's insight more. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because, I mean, it came out between seasons two and season three. So mm-hmm. I feel like I know Sarah pretty well by that point. And so I don't, you know, like you're saying, I don't feel like I need to hear her exact thoughts at any given moment, because I I feel like I kind of have an idea of what they'd be. I Mm -hmm. I don't dislike hearing actual thoughts, but it doesn't feel as necessary as it might if it was earlier in the series. Mm -hmm. In my mind. Whereas Beth is still the unknown quantity. And like, I I would have, I'm with you, I would have appreciated more directly from her like you're saying, there is some Beth in here that is helpful, you know? Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't solve a problem, but it, it does kind of introduce a couple of more beats to her character. Mm-hmm. I did for Sarah's issue, I, I did actually like seeing the flashback where Mrs. S comes to take her home with her. Just because, I don't know, maybe it's that I just love Mrs. S so much. I was just excited to see what she was like when Sarah was a young girl. She very much like she is now, <laughs> the way that she's portrayed in the comic. But I actually did, as somebody who's not a lover of a great lover of flashbacks, I did actually really like that moment in the comic book. See, I think that's maybe more what I was hoping for when they denounced this. You know what I mean? Like, here's mm-hmm. stuff that we maybe vaguely know about, but like, let's see it. <laughs> Though something that it didn't answer that I'm still curious about is if Mrs. S had Felix when she adopted Sarah. Right. I think the answer is no, but we we don't know either way still. Right. Something for a future issue, perhaps. Mm. Sure. <laughs> what was that noise, Stephanie? <laughs> I don't know. What did it sound like? <laughs> it almost sounded like, like, eh. <laughs> oh, no. It was supposed to be more of a mm, noise. <laughs> oh, okay. Because it was somewhere in between those, and I couldn't more tell a- which way it was leaning. <laughs> I'm a- more of a yummy noise. <laughs> I also did want to point out from the Sarah issue, something I didn't notice until I was looking at it again this morning, was the the issue actually begins with 
the twins' birth scene with Amelia giving birth to her and Helena. And in that scene, we see this mysterious figure whose face is dark, and he's, he or she mm-hmm. seems to be wearing like a scarf over their face, like a long, dark coat. And I'm curious, it, obviously, they are obscuring this person's identity. Why? It feels like that's something that they're going to touch on in the future, perhaps. Probably so. Because if it was supposed to be yeah. Carlton, who we know knew Amelia kind of during that time, or who it suggested, you know, knew Amelia during that time, why wouldn't they just show us Carlton? Like, the fact that we can't see who this person is seems significant. But would it be Carlton? Because Carlton didn't take Sarah to Mrs. S until years later, correct? That's fair. But like, if it was what I'm implying, though, is if it was like a character that we knew already, right, right. why no, wouldn't I, they just show it? I get yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Or there's the, was it the ferryman or whatever they called him? Yeah. So may- so maybe, that's true, because they mentioned that back in season two, but they didn't really follow through on it. There are a few people. Yeah, and, and whoever it is, is paying off the uh, doctor that delivers right. Helena and Sarah. So, you know, whoever it is, is clearly, you know, in the know. They have creepily pale hands, too. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if those are gloves or just creepy pale hands. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they were. I was thinking that as well. I was like, oh, those gloves or what? His hands don't look quite as pale later on, so maybe they're gloves. But he does seem to have maybe creepy pale gloves. hands. He or she. <laughs> it looks it looks like he a man. She. But could be a woman. Who knows? Yeah, it's it, the clothes are too baggy to really make a judgment, which is totally what they... We're doing exactly what they want us to do, Stephanie. We're yeah. just trying to figure, you know, look at every single detail, try to figure it out. Yep. Then they were successful. <laughs> Way to go. So moving on to the Helena issue, uh, Elizabeth, you were mentioning you felt like that it that the comic didn't really warm up until like issue three or so. I actually I think the Helena issue is my favorite because yeah. this was stuff that I had not imagined and didn't really tr- you know had no hint that these things that we see in the comic happened. Like the only thing that we now that I knew, now had like a hint about happening was the emergence of Pupak, just because it's seen season three already. Uh, but sure. I thought there was lots of new information in this issue. Yeah, especially if we think about it as being pre-season three, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I mean, I, I I don't mean to be mean to this issue. It's yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's a gr- it's a great one. I think what I'm what my instinct about it though is that it's these are things that are are all precisely in other words these are more supplemental things than more thing in other words all of these things feel like they're exactly between the lines of the story Mm -hmm. which is great like i mean hey i like that part but it it doesn't do a lot of stuff that's like off the off the rails of the story right Mm -hmm. like out out of our line of sight Mm mm-hmm or rather, it just does things that are just out of our line of sight rather than doing stuff that we hadn't even had hints about before. Right. I, I agree with what both of you are saying, because it is one of those things where they've hinted at something like this, though I don't know that this is exactly what you would have pictured when you're thinking about it, mostly yes. because you're trying not to think about it, because poor Helena, you know, knowing that mm-hmm. some... <sighs> horrible things that happened to her growing up or at least they certainly hinted such but yeah actually getting a precise picture of what those are that's really what this issue is which is really more what i'd hoped for going into the first issue so i appreciated this because again being 
a little disappointed by the lack of new information in issue one. It's like, oh, this is more what I was hoping for. So here's, mm-hmm. you know, an actual thing that happened in Helena's past that we haven't seen before, even though they've hinted at it. And and yeah, I mean, this is the first appearance of Pupak. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I really like the information that we got about Helena and Maggie's relationship, because while I knew that Helena liked Maggie, I think before I just thought they were kind of comrades in arms on the same mission type of relationship. But the relationship between the two of them, as depicted in the comic, is a lot deeper than I would have assumed. Right. I mean, we find out that Maggie's essentially Helena's protector a little bit. Right. And yeah, that's something I, I don't know that I really thought about it that way. So it was sort of nice to get that information. I never would have suspected that Maggie was the one that gave her the the fish knife. Like that's that's one of the things that happens in here. Is that Maggie giving her the her her interesting bladed knife? Right. That comes up later. Mm-hmm. So it does help weave Maggie Chen back into the story a little more solidly. You know, right? Because mm-hmm. I I mean I have a lot of questions about Maggie Chen now. Oh yeah. Yes, I do too. Well, and two, I think one of the reasons that this book shines is that Helena's backstory is just more fun to show in a comic book. Like it's more <laughs> violent. There's more like there's more like action, you mm-hmm. know, like I mean, a lot of it's unpleasant stuff, but it's like there's just more visually interesting stuff to be doing here. Whereas, you know, Sarah's story, although it is really interesting from like a more psychological point of view, I mean, it's a lot of people talking you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that like, it's important things they're saying. And they're but like, you know, there's not a lot of throwing things and diving through the air, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you like your splash page no. violence. <laughs> uh huh. It's 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 more muted, which, you know, is good. I like talking. Uh, I'm not against it. But there's no, you know, stabbing with rebar happening. In <laughs> story. You know, like, it's just, you know, less, uh, Less violent, less <laughs> visual, I guess, is the way I need, need to say it. But the downside is you don't get the Helena musical cue. Mm, it's true. Except except in yeah. your head. If you're me, you're reading it and like... <laughs> <laughs> Every time. <laughs> so for if yeah. there's anybody listening at this point who haven't read the comic books yet, I'll mention that all the way that all of these issues are set up is that there is quite a bit of inner monologue that is pieced over scenes. So you get to have the whatever the character is thinking, and then there might be dialogue in the same panel. And and it's the same for, for every issue. Like, it's really sort of inner monologue heavy. You can read some, some comic books, right, where those little bits where it's just the character thinking are kind of sparse. It's mostly you see dialogue and action and things like this. But the inner, inner monologue boxes are used a lot in these comics. And... While, like you were saying, Chris, when it came to Sarah's comic book, her issue, you kind of feel like, oh, I kind of know what Sarah's thinking. I don't know that I necessarily need her exact thought at this moment. When it came to Helena, I was thinking about, I was like, you know, this is actually, it felt newer to me because most of the time I'm like, what are you thinking, Helena? (laughs) I think that's fair. That is an excellent point. Yeah. And I love the way that sometimes she'll have sort of an inner dialogue with herself. Like it's someone else mm-hmm. talking to her, Maggie or, you know, somebody else talking. And her inner monologue is having a dialogue 
<laughs> with her so, something someone else has told her. So it does kind of show you how crowded her head is, mm-hmm. which is, you know, an interesting <laughs> an interesting way of thinking about her motivations and sort of how she's, you know, what is going on behind her in her head. Which I think we do get a sense of in the first season, especially, or at least in my mind, it's especially in the first season where we see her sort of debating what to do about Sarah, because it's clear that she's been instructed to kill Sarah, but it's also clear that she doesn't want to. So Mm -hmm. I think we get a sense of that duality there. But I do Mm -hmm. like in the comics, like, that is actually what is going on in her head. She is having the the conflicting thoughts about these things. So Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm. So I guess for me, as somebody who's not a lover of the inner monologue boxes, I thought they worked especially well for Helena, because I think her Mm -hmm. actions can be very inscrutable at times. See, I mean, I grew up with comics. I have periodically throughout my life been an avid comic fan. So I'm so used to it that I'm, I guess, not bothered by them the way that you are. Oh, it's not so much that I'm bothered by them, but I don't know. I just feel like character narration isn't as interesting as seeing what an actor can do with a particular scene. So since this is an entity that I first experienced as a television show, I don't particularly care about the inner monologues of these particular people. If I was just seeing them as comic book characters, it probably wouldn't bother me as much. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. But since I have an iteration of these characters in my head that aren't comic-based, I have different expectations, I guess, or, or different desires as to what I'd like to see for them. So it's it's just a, I don't know, I guess a, a bump for me going from the TV medium to the comic book medium. Hmm. See, that's what I love about having a TV show that goes with a comic book is that like I have their voices in my head so squarely. And sometimes when it's done well, like when you can get sort of an extra little thrill when like the way the artist has given you a character or a movement or something is especially exactly what you would think that would happen on the show, like how the actor would do it. It's it just you know, it it has a little bit of an exponential thrill, you know, it's like, it's a little bit more than what could go on in the TV show alone. But it's also a little bit more than what the comic could do if it didn't have a television show that went with it. So there's sort of this, you know, thing that happens when they all combine together in a good way, right? So when when Helena's inner monologue and her, the way that her, you know, she turns to face the audience or the way that she moves or, you know, looks, feels especially right. It's just, yeah, it gives you a little extra, a little something extra. Or like Allison's hand <laughs> gestures or really like yes. the positioning of her hands as much as anything. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, do we want to talk about Allison's comic? Oh, yes. Her Let's issue. Talk. Number three. <laughs> so <Yes>. I think <laughs> the thing that I liked best about Allison's was – all of her little jokes that she would make either like in her head or in her little her little monologue boxes like it was just full of these very Allison jokes and they made me smile every uh-huh. time <laughs> uh-huh i like at one point in this she says crumb cakes yes. in her brain mm-hmm. and it's amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because she doesn't she doesn't even swear in her head like yeah. it's, this is inner monologue Allison you can say whatever you want yeah, but exactly. for Allison that cakes. is swearing so mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah holy fudge that's sauce that's that's why yes. 
Well done. Well done. I want to add to the Allison issue is the only one I think that came out during the airing of season three. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it came out before the episode where we were introduced to Allison's mother. So Allison's mother is actually introduced in this issue. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. To to me, that's one of those things. It was interesting reading it, but then I think it took me seeing her on screen to go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The actress really helped solidify the voice, right. you know, like, whereas before it's like, I can see that this character's, you know, overbearing and a little unpleasant, but like, uh, <laughs> once the actress is on the screen, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. We've had dinner. <laughs> Well, because in in the issue, it's almost borderline mustache twirling evil. Mm. Uh So it kind of takes seeing it in in action to go, okay, now I know who this woman is. Yeah, it's hard to be subtle (laughs) in this medium and like about that particular kind of thing, especially when you're introducing a new character. In order for it to really read, you know, you've got to give it a little a little oomph. Yeah, the... The Allison issue largely focused on Donnie, which I think was surprising to a lot of people. But I kind of appreciated it. It was very Donnie-focused, because he even had some scenes, if you will, in in the comic book where he was by himself. Like, we saw him interacting with Dr. Leakey, both in flashback and, I think, mm-hmm. presently. So, you know, he he was without Allison for a couple of, of sections, which is interesting in the given that the comic book issue was supposed to be focused on allison Mm -hmm. well and allison was sort of out of it for a lot of this Mm -hmm. or at least you know trying to get herself out of it in various ways um but yeah it i have to say i really like the donnie stuff just because it helped it it was always a little odd for me in the show like how on earth did donnie get roped into this monitor position like how how would how would someone present that to you in a way that would at all feel appealing Mm. you know but seeing him as a character in college actually getting roped into it like it feels real now it feels like oh yeah i i could see how donnie could get convinced that this is the way to go i think that's fair because yeah watching it you're kind of like what kind of person (laughs) would do that would think that oh yeah, yeah that's a reasonable request. Yeah, but yeah. It shows his doubts, but it also shows how, you know, it's his own self-doubt and sort of self-loathing that really uh, makes him vulnerable to the idea, which, you know, makes sense with the character. It's great characterization. Mm-hmm. And they kept up in the comic book the dynamic that we saw between Donnie and Dr. Leakey in season two with Dr. Leakey just absolutely being horrible to Donnie, just calling him stupid and belittling him all the time. And it was just like, how did he, the fact that we see this dynamic between the two of them from the beginning, I think actually is illuminating about Donnie as a person and, and his relationship with Allison. Like how did he go through all these things and still end up with Allison? Like, well, he's kind of passive in, in regards to things like this. It seems like not just with Allison, but with other people. It really is kind of an issue of people just being terrible to Donnie. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> it's like, yeah, poor Donnie. Because there is a, a, a recreation of the hot glue gun scene in this issue. And I was just looking and, and noticing that they contrasted it on the next page with a very sweet memory of the two of them in college together, Allison and Donnie. It's like, oh, that's kind of nice. Like, 
but you know terrible glue gun incident on the other page in the craft room of terror and a picture of the big blue big blue boob blowies dvd which you know everybody always loves that <laughs> you can you can uh screenshot a picture of this and you know use it forever <laughs> i think something that i i did appreciate about allison's issue which I don't think I really realized until I was kind of going back through it a second time, is the clips that we get from Allison and Donnie on the couple's retreat, which is where Allison was supposed to be during, I believe it's during parts developed in an unusual manner. Because I think in, in Tangled Bank, she comes back and she's like, Donnie and I are getting a divorce. And what I think we learned from that is, is because that was a big switch, I think, from, yeah, we're going on this retreat, we're working on it, then coming back, we're going to get divorced, is how much her drinking and being secretive about her drinking was causing problems in their relationship. Because that obviously was a big theme in season two, but I don't think we saw it as problematic for them necessarily in season one. So I think that did fill in some of a, something of a little bit of a gap for me that I didn't know was there until I read this issue. That's fair. It's on point. Yeah. But I mean, there there was the scene in season one of, you know, Allison taking out the recycling and it was just, it was just wine bottles pretty much. So mm-hmm. yeah, there, there are hints of it in season one and then it's just clearly overtly a problem in season two. So. Right. Because we, but we also see in season one where she's like drinking wine in front of him and, and things like that. So I didn't necessarily get that her drinking was her excessive drinking was something she was keeping secret from donnie at, at that mm, point mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so let's talk about Cosima. Cosima, hi Cosima. <laughs> i flipped to the page that has the cover of her and it made me happy hi Cosima. oh that's that's why the change in your voice <laughs> yes <laughs> so i liked the Cosima issue but mm-hmm. it also was the issue where i started going wait a minute do they have some continuity problems with their storytelling here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Short answer is yes. Which, I mean, yes. if you're watching the show as it's airing, it's like it's really clear that there's some sort of weird, I don't know, they're in some sort of time Bubble? portal or yeah, yeah there's some yeah. <laughs> there's some distortion in the space-time continuum, <laughs> which is where the show <laughs> takes place. Yeah, in particular, the thing that stood out to me in this issue and is, was that we see that very distinctive moment between Delphine and Cosima when they're standing out in the middle of that courtyard by a statue. And they show mm-hmm. that, which took place on the show, after the TED Talk, like Leaky's TED Talk thing. And that comes before the TED Talk in the comic, I think. Like, they, they just blatantly switch some order oh. of events in the comic. And I was like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. It was kind of throwing me for a loop because I was trying to figure out if the events of the comic were supposed to be following the events of the series or not. Also, and this is perhaps overly nitpicky, but... Weren't they talking about some previous TED Talk that he'd done, and they were going to a different thing? <laughs> Maybe. I, I don't remember at this point, but oh, it's I thought that's what, I thought that was the conversation they had in the first season. Is like, oh, did you see his TED Talk on whatever? Yes. yeah. The, oh, and yes, then they yeah. went to go see him at the college. For yeah, it was just like a, a, right. a, a presentation, presentation there. Rather than a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. You're right, yeah. It wasn't mm-hmm. actually a TED Talk, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They also show Delphine and... And Cosima being overtly uh, affectionate, <laughs> affectionate, 
before, I noticed that too. I was like, what's going on? Before the timeline in the series where we kind of see Delphine realize like, hey, I might be attracted to her. Like there's, it's not, it's very clear in the, in the comic book that they were being kind of smushy with each other before that moment. I mean, Cosimo was like reclining <laughs> on Delphine's legs. Lap. On her lap, and, yes. Uh, I mean, yes, granted, yes. in college, I did have a friend who just, like, casually put her head in my lap while we were watching TV, and I was like, what? <laughs> but the expression on Delphine's face, it, it, it seems like she's completely fine with this. I know, that's, and- like, Delphine was cool with it, and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, it's a snuggle between friends. <laughs> Which I'm not we opposed to. It's just like, did that happen? That seems like it happened awfully fast. Yeah, yeah. Mm. We snuggled Fair like enough. that all the time in college, didn't we, Elizabeth? <laughs> well, you know, not to my memory, but, you know, <laughs> sure. Elizabeth's like, denied! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could happen. We get this other character, too, mm-hmm. that complicates that the beginning of the Delphine relationship a little bit. Just, I mean, not... I'm not saying Kasim is doing anything wrong, but it just sort of complicates where Kasim's feelings might be at that moment. So she she has she breaks up with a char- another character that was her monitor before she moved, and then the other character though, you know, wants to stay with Kasima because you know who wouldn't? But uh, she she's you know following her being you know inappropriate and stalky, which complicates that delphine thing you know like there's this they're having again not that kasim is doing anything wrong but just that like there's other feelings going on here that she's closer to a rebound than we might have thought you know right i think especially because this came out after season three like shortly after and Uh to me this issue really set up kasima as like a serial monogamist kind of (laughs) You know what sure. I mean? Because it's like, oh, it turns out right before the whole situation where she was just like relentlessly flirting with Delphine, <laughs> she'd been in a relationship right before that. And of course, season three, she moved on pretty quickly from Delphine to Shay. So it's kind of like, huh. <laughs> I think that it set up, a yeah. in my mind, it set up a pattern of behavior for Kazima. Mm-hmm. I had thought about that, but that's a good point, Chris. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hey. I liked the detail about her ex-girlfriend that she was in a band called Pythagoras. Because of course she would be. Yes. like a bunch of, course, of nerds. I know. Of course that gal dates Kasima. Of course she does. Sure. <laughs> the other thing that I liked and I found kind of surprising in this in this one, and I was trying to think if it went against how Paul's relationship with Dyad was characterized in season one, was we see when... Kasima's ex-girlfriend follows her to Minnesota and is being a bit of a nuisance, is not wanting to let go and let Delphine be her new monitor. Paul comes and, and threatens her with a with a gun. And like one of the lines that he says to her is, you stay out of Dyad's business and they won't send me to bleed you like a farm animal. Like That was Ew. not my impression of how Paul was functioning for Dyad at all. So that was a very illuminating scene for me. Mm-hmm. Ooh, thinking about it now, is that one of the trips that Paul was taking when when Sarah was taking Beth's life, mm. essentially? Yeah, he had to go to Minnesota and threaten somebody. <laughs> Good point. Now we know. Well, and I mean, are, it's clear that this 
I mean, we're 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 assuming everybody's read this comic at this point, so because I'm gonna do a major spoiler here. But this girlfriend, the girl in the band, is clearly killed by Dyad. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, who else bombs your band's van and sends you, you know, hurtling off of a mountain road? Like that's that's classic them, you know. So that that they would go so far as to just, you know, not just murder her, but take out her whole band. Pythagora is no more. <laughs> could we could we have a quick, you know, uh, pour uh, out, pour razor out, lighters? Yeah, we're gonna pour out some wine little, for for Pythagoras yes. <laughs> for the homies. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but but yeah, that they would do that to her to, just to get her out of the way. I mean, just to make sure that the the way was clear for Delphine. Not that Delphine, I think, knew about or was involved in the bombing of the van, but... No, no, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, she was, you know, busy home being smooshy with Cosima. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Could she possibly be bombing a van? She has a snuggle defense. <laughs> <laughs> New favorite phrase, okay. snuggle defense. Snuggle defense, yeah. <laughs> the snuggle defense. When we start a band, it's going to be um, called snuggle yeah. defense. <laughs> It's much safer than any sort of, you know, mathematicians or anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Philosophers. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess kind of similar to the Allison comic book, Delphine has a couple of scenes where she's not with Cosima in this comic book. It, we Unfortunately, we revisit that bedroom moment between her and Dr. Leakey in here. <laughs> I don't know if this was particularly illuminating. I don't know. I don't know. What did y'all think about that? Where we see Delphine talking to, to Leaky after clearly they'd been up to some shenanigans. <laughs> shenanigans. I, I appreciate your euphemism. You're welcome. <laughs> I did. Well, here's the thing. I, I was glancing at Twitter after the issue came out, but before I had gotten it. And so I knew this was coming because people were not happy on Twitter. They were like, <laughs> I did not need to see that to again. See that. <laughs> I did not need to be reminded of that. And again, this coming out after season three, I think, made it worse for yeah. for those people, which I get. <laughs> I have no thoughts on the scene itself. Not really. It's just... Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know. I, I guess in my mind, it more or less confirmed what I'd thought before, you know? Mm. I guess. I don't know. Oh, and to correct what what I what I said earlier, the mistake in the timeline is that we see the presentation, not TED Talk, even though they call it a TED Talk. Then we see post Leaky Delphine's shenanigan time, and then we see Delphine and Casima standing by the statue in the courtyard. I guess maybe it was supposed to be a different time they were standing in the statue. There was a flashback within the flashback. Yes, but there was definitely some time wonkery going on. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. So let's move on to talk about Rachel's issue. This had a lot of new stuff in it, I felt like. Which kind of fits in with, you know, what we'd established already. I think of the clones, we're least familiar with Rachel, so mm-hmm. it's not hard to give us new information about her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, she, her and her backstory and how she's justifying all the stuff to herself is you know, fascinating to me. I mean, th- this is like, you know, as I warm up to them more and more. I do appreciate the Helena episode, but what we learn about Rachel and how it leads into what's coming next is I, my favorite. Like this is, this is where it starts to really get good for me. 
I think they did try to, I don't know if it fully gelled for me, the, at least the first time through when I read it. I mean, I understood what happened, but I don't know if it fully explained things for me. Uh, but they did try to suggest why she had such antipathy toward the other clones. We we saw pretty much straight out of Kasima's psychological diagnosis of Rachel. We see Leaky telling her, like, oh, you're special. You get to be self-aware. You should feel sorry for mm-hmm. all the other clones because they don't get to be self-aware. But I think that mm-hmm. encounter that we see between her and Vera after the fire was very interesting to me the suggestion Uh that she kind of blamed vera for the fact that her parents had died in the fire you know they should be alive Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be alive which i mean goes with everything we know about rachel right rachel Mm -hmm. has a massive chip on her shoulder (laughs) (laughs) what am i wrong no i just i like that expression thank you (laughs) you're welcome it also wraps rachel up in the story that is coming because I can tell you that Vera is going to play an important role in Helsinki and, you know, be part of our, be our, our, one of our characters that we follow most closely in Helsinki. So yeah, it, it's folding this comic story in nicely with the show. I will say though, like I mentioned, I don't know if it fully that, that moment with her and Vera where she blame kind of blames her for her parents' death. I don't know if it mm-hmm. fully explained things for me for about Rachel, unless it's just hinting nope. that, yeah, she's just kind of mean. Like, <laughs> that was just kind of I mean, that's how there. I took it. <laughs> like, okay, like, she, she had some bad stuff happen to her, but yeah, she's just kind of mean. Yeah, you know, I don't think that we can fully explain Rachel from a nurture perspective. Like, that, in other words, that every action that she takes doesn't seem to follow from a bit of her characterization that comes from like how she was raised or like the, you know, the sort of mind warp that comes from the fact that she's a self-aware clone. But I don't think, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think that explains everything, nor do I want it right, to really. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't need a one-to-one. Well, this is, you know, you, you know, you had that bad experience with, uh, you know, a dog. And so that when you were a small child, and that's why you fear all animals. I mean, like, I don't need that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just, it's okay. People are weird. We get it. Like people are sometimes mean, you know, and we don't necessarily need to explain every single bit of it. I mean, we can, in other words, we can be convinced that it is in part socialization that has made her this way without having to see every tick of how the socialization came, you know, worked out this way. Sure. But I think for me, what was interesting was that that moment really seemed to come before the socialization by Leaky, t- telling her like, oh, you're mm-hmm. special, you should feel bad for them. Mm-hmm. It, Yeah, it really, <laughs> it seemed to be kind of there already, even though before she was raised by Leaky, she had parents who seemed to love her. Sure. She, I mean, she's not, you know, she she's not exactly uh, okay <laughs> for from even when she has her parents, right? Mm. Like even when she has her parents, she's she's not very understanding about Vera, and she's not, you know, she's she's sort of you know a cold person, even as a child. I mean, you know, I, there's no right or wrong way to react to the fact that someone you meet for the first time has your face. I mean, <laughs> I feel like that's something that, you know, we can we can talk about. But, you know, she she doesn't seem to be particularly warm or understanding even before the terrible experiences that she has. Mm. Of course, I'm curious because 
Susan and Ethan Duncan, from what we've seen of them, in the home movies of them when Rachel was a child, you know, they seem very loving and everything. But what we see mm-hmm. of them in real time on the show, they're kind of odd. Like, mm-hmm. there's some weird stuff going on with those two. And so I guess I wonder about them in the greater sense of, of Rachel's childhood. Like, what was her childhood like as a whole? Mm. I have to tell you, I think all the time, like, what when are we going to learn that those home videos were staged in some way? Mm. Like, why did they, why did they look so happy there? Like what, what exactly was going on? It feels like in a funny way, like a part of an experiment, um, hmm. you know, seeing what it would be like if we acted normal for a day, you know, it just feels so strange, like strangely documented, I'm not saying that we don't do that with her own lives, but it does seem like they created some really nice, happy family home videos, you know, some very polished home videos. I just sort of wonder what's going on behind the camera, you know? Interesting. They feel they they don't feel quite genuine to me. I mean, look, from the perspective of the show, they feel genuine, but they don't feel like they feel a little off just because exactly what you're saying because of what we know about these people now you know uh, about the uh, Susan and Ethan Duncan interesting and you know faking their death for 20 years yeah exactly like they made their little girl go through this funeral Mm -hmm. like that tells me something strange you know something's off I will say from the interactions that we get between Rachel and her parents, I get the sense that her father was the more nurturing one of the two. So now that we've had Mm -hmm. the introduction of her mother at the end of season three, I'm curious to see what their interactions Mm -hmm. are going to be like on the show. Good point. Because, yeah, I mean, there, you know, with Ethan Duncan, there's been all the talk about him reading Island of Dr. Moreau and such to her. So, Mm -hmm. and of course, teaching her some weird cipher and uh, what? Yeah. Who knows? It's bonding. It's nerd bonding. Come on. (laughs) And Orphan Black loves to throw in references to literary works. And so we should probably mention that in the Rachel comic book, we see Vera reading Mm. The Wizard of Oz. Mm. Good point. Well, I I have this sense that she's going to go on a sort of, you know, down the yellow brick road kind of journey in this Helsinki comic that's coming up. I, again... I've only got a limited experience with it, but it seems that 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 feels right to me. Well, and like we mentioned, we obviously didn't talk about the Helsinki storyline in this episode. We will most likely talk about it in a future episode once all of the comic books have come out in in the series. So we'll look for that discussion of that storyline in a future episode Mm -hmm. of this podcast. Yeah, expect it sometime after season four, Mm -hmm. probably whenever they get the trade paperback published. Right. Yes. Feels like a natural place to do it, a natural time. <laughs> and then I can do like Stephanie and just flip through the whole thing to see the differences in color palette. There you go. <laughs> Which probably won't exist since it's one story. If you if you flip through fast enough, maybe it'll be like watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us to talk about the Orphan Black comics. Hey, I'm always glad to talk about comics. You, Yeah, anytime. If you want to connect with Elizabeth, she's on Twitter as E-Cootie. That's E-C-O-O-D-Y. 
and she's my friend. She's nice. I hope you like her. <laughs> Aw. I like you, Elizabeth. Aw. I like you too, Chris. Aw. <laughs> Thank you. If you have read the Orphan Black comics, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can go and leave a comment over on the show notes for this episode at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 98. You can send us an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. Tatiana is Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts by going to askgenretv.com. And in this episode, The Snuggle Defense was played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.